0: This morning, we will see that Peter is calling us to practice the godliness we've been promised so that we will be spiritually productive as we rest in God's provision of eternal life. Please read along silently as I read our text this morning from 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. Peter begins with the command to make every effort. It's a command. We call this an imperative. You know the difference between an imperative and an indicative. An indicative makes a statement. It states a theological truth. But the imperatives of the Bible call us to respond, really, to those indicatives. When we see the nature of God and the nature of man and we see the certainty of eternal life for those who would repent and believe in the gospel we see indicative statements we see truths that are declared with an exclamation point and then following up those indicatives are imperatives they are commands peter has clearly and plainly given us the gospel he is in an indicative way declared to us what the gospel is and here he's given us commands in light of it this is an instruction he's telling us what to do now, let me just tell you that this is how spiritual growth works. You read the commands of the Bible. You do them. You grow. You live your life. And you do it again. If you don't have a copy of this little book, Sanctification by Mike Riccardi, I, I recommend it. Mike's a staff pastor at Grace Community Church. In it, he says... Sometimes the doctrine of sanctification doesn't fill us with the same sense of wonder and appreciation as do the doctrines of justification and glorification. That may be because reflection on the pursuit of practical holiness quickly reminds us of how slowly we are progressing in the process of sanctification. To think of the doctrine of sanctification simply reminds us of what we ought to be, but what we are not yet. Besides this, there is a great deal of confusion about the doctrine of sanctification. Christians have long debated what the role of the believer is in progressive sanctification. Are we to be actively engaged in pursuing holiness, or are we to instead be passive, waiting faithfully for God to work holiness in us? You have some, on the one hand, who say things like, pray like a Calvinist, but work like an Arminian. Pray as if it all depended on God, but work as if it all depended on you. Now, I understand the intent of statements like this, but allow me to suggest that is never a good idea to pretend that something that's false is true just to achieve a certain result. In fact, there is likely not a surer recipe for disaster in your pursuit of holiness than to adopt errant theology as the basis for your philosophy of the Christian life. On the other hand, Though you have those who say things like, your problem is that you are trying to live the Christian life. What you really need to do is let Christ live through you. You need to let go and let God stop striving and just relax. And so confusion abounds, end quote. Strongly recommend the book. You'll be very happy you read it and you'll find it to be extremely helpful. Those are not the only confusing mindsets that are out there, and there is a prevalent sweep in our nation among once faithful Christian leaders to re-embrace what we would fundamentally call antinomianism, an abandonment of the law, as if the commands of the Bible are not for us, but they are. And then there's this unnecessary and almost divisive distinction between the law and the gospel. Now, let me tell you, there is a distinction between the law and the gospel. But when you take that distinction beyond what it actually is, you have comments like, well, I love the gospel, but I don't have any interest in the law. The person who loves the gospel is a person who loves the law. Read Psalm 1 for a quick commentary on the need to love the law of God and the benefits of loving the law of God. So Peter says, make every effort that utterly destroys Keswick theology that says, let go and let God. Make every effort. Now, don't forget the why behind making every effort. So Peter says, for this reason. Make every effort. For what reason? We'll go back to verses 3 and 4, where Peter says, "...His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature." having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What reason? More succinctly, because his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness because he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Because of that. Because he has granted to To us by his divine power, all things pertaining to life and godliness, and he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That's the reason. Now, more systematically, for the reason of the power for godliness, the pathway of godliness, the promise of godliness, and the proof of godliness, at which we looked last week. You remember our outline from last week, rooted in and derived from verses 3 and 4. Point number one last week was the power for godliness, where Peter has said his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We see the power for godliness. Point number two, the pathway to godliness came from the latter half of verse three through the knowledge of him. That's the pathway. The knowledge of him, the increasing awareness of sound doctrine related to what God has said about himself. A willingness to believe it and submit to it and yield to it and humble oneself before it instead of rejecting it. Saying, that can't be true. Him, by the way, God, Jesus Christ, who what? Who called us to his own glory and excellence. So we're not only looking at the reason of the power for godliness and the pathway to godliness, but also the promise of godliness. In verse 4, where Peter says, "...by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature." The divine nature, that godly state. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5 to show that all things have become new for the new Christian. There are not two natures. There is one nature, and there is the flesh. And we fight the flesh. And in Romans 7, Paul shows us that fight that he experienced as a 20-year veteran Christian. It should give you hope. It should give you encouragement. It does me. We continue that fight. Paul points to the reality that one day Jesus Christ will set him free from the body of this death. But for now, on the one hand, I with my mind am serving the law of God. Yet on the other, serving the law of sin with the flesh. But the pathway really rests in the promise, the promise of godliness by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Your divine nature, your new state, the new condition, the new nature is a direct and certain result of the promise of God in his gospel. The fourth point we looked at was the proof of godliness. And that is that the person that God has called has in fact escaped the corrupt nature of this world. That corrupt nature, that corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Sinful desire from where? From the heart of the corrupt person. The totally depraved person which you and I were in that category in our birth. So for this reason... Make every effort. Now, the unregenerate, intentionally simple-minded person at this point would say, well, which is it? Has God granted that to us, or are we supposed to make every effort? And I go back to the Apostle Peter, and he says, God has granted it to us, and we are to make every effort. But the unregenerate mind cannot and does not want to comprehend this. He wants one or the other to be true that he cannot handle the reality that God has said that it is true and you are to follow it up volitionally. So picking up here from last week, point number five, the practice of godliness. You might have guessed that that would be our point if you had read this text. The practice of godliness. In verse five, Peter says, for this very reason, make every Effort. Make every effort what? To do the following, to obey the following commands, to supplement your faith with virtue. What faith? Well, the faith referenced in verse 1, where Peter said, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a person who writes in your Bible, if I were you, I would circle the word faith there. I would circle the word faith, and I would draw a line back to verse 1 where the word faith exists and circle that one too because it's the same word, and this will help you as you read this on into the future to understand and recall what faith Peter is talking about in each place. Two weeks ago, we told you that the source of this only saving faith is, as Peter says, the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He being righteous, fully righteous, fully obeying his father was the legitimate substitute who gave his life for the sins of the elect. That every person who would trust him, every person who would repent of their sins and believe in him would in fact receive his righteousness. We call this, because the Bible calls it, imputation. Imputation is not impartation. Don't confuse the two words. To impart something is to give it. To impute is to declare it. So we're talking about the legal declaration that God has declared all recipients of God's grace, God's special grace, not common grace. All recipients of God's special grace to, in fact, be righteous. This is the righteous condition. We saw that in verse 1 two weeks ago. And we said the results of this saving faith are grace and peace that are multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And so with regard to that faith then here this morning, Peter says to us, so supplement that faith. Supply in addition to that faith a number of items. See, Christ has provided your faith, You must supplement that faith with the following responses. He begins with supplementing that faith with virtue. If you're reading the NAS, it reads moral excellence. Now, again, you could draw a circle around the word virtue here or moral excellence and draw a line back to virtue or excellence depending upon which version you have in verse 3 because it's the same term. You are called to virtue. You are called to moral excellence. Why? Because you are saved by a God of moral excellence. And he has called you to his moral excellence. You remember that from verse 3? It's no mystery why Peter would use the same word in calling you and me to faithful conduct as he would our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we have the knowledge necessary for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Doesn't that make perfect sense that he's calling you and me to this virtue, saying that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness in the true knowledge of him who is virtuous, he who is. Holds perfect moral excellence is the standard. He's the object. He's the focal point at which we should look in our own response to Christ to obey the imperative to engage in moral excellence. What is moral excellence, though? What is virtue? It's a wonderfulness, it's a majesty, it is excellence, it's moral distinction, excellence of character desiring, hungering for sound integrity of character. This requires daily, really moment-by-moment moment self-examination of conduct and attitude. It also requires a willingness to be scrutinized by the body of Christ. There's nothing more troubling to me than the man who is unwilling to sit under the scrutiny of the body of Christ. That man can't be helped until he hungers for this desire for personal virtue. A love for moral excellence recognizes that it can't be accomplished alone. You say, well, only Christ can accomplish it. That's right. And Christ does not accomplish it apart from the body of Christ. This, as I said, requires a daily scrutiny of self. It is to press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, just as Paul did, as he stated in Philippians 3.14. And so we're called to supply to that virtue knowledge. He says, and virtue with knowledge. Supply to your virtue with your virtue, supplement it with knowledge. And again... You could circle this word, knowledge, and draw a line back to the same word in verse 2, where Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then back to verse 3, where he says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And you might write in your margin Proverbs 1, verse 7, that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You might also write in your margin Proverbs 9 9 to 10. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. There's no such thing as wisdom apart from the knowledge of the character of God. The person who grows in his understanding of the character of God and increasingly yields himself to an embrace, a willingness to enjoy the truth of what God has said about himself is the man who gains wisdom. The man who proves himself to be a fool is the man who repeatedly rejects what God has said about himself. Oh, and supply to your knowledge self-control and knowledge with self-control. Control of self. Self-restraint. Proverbs 10, 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. In Galatians five twenty two, with that string of fruits of the Spirit, Peter gives us self-control, as what I like to refer to as the safety net. You can't conjure up Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. You can conjure up self-control. You can at least keep your mouth shut. You say, I don't know. <laughs> I say, I, I, I get you. Me too. But you can. And that is a fruit of spirit. We're called to it. Peter calls us to it. He says, add, listen, think of the confluence of these two terms together, that you would add knowledge but then you would add self-control to your knowledge what is he saying be careful that you don't use your knowledge unwisely you know like we talked a little bit about last week with paul telling us that knowledge puffs up be careful that you don't hammer the new christian because you think he doesn't have enough truth be careful that you don't misuse what knowledge you have it's one thing to have a passage of scripture memorized it's another thing to know what it means So, add self control to your knowledge. In Romans 13, 14, Paul says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So, build parameters. Do away with the provisions. That's self control. You're having trouble with a bad habit, do away with the substance of that bad habit and don't purchase it anymore say, well, that's a lot easier said than done. Yeah, but it's still easy to do. It's still possible to stay away from that place where you grab things that you know are going to result in the nurturing of your addiction, whatever it may be. A willingness to take one step and then another step and then another step and then another step and then then open the car door and then get in the car and then turn the key and then press the gas pedal. And do all those steps one at a time is a willingness to say, self-control, I don't have any need for that. I'm fine without that. Self-control says I will establish parameters and I will do away with provisions. Whatever they are, whatever it takes, I will eliminate them from my vision. I will separate myself from them. That's self-control. Restrict your conduct in keeping within biblical parameters. Don't step outside. As the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 57 says, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. There's a picturesque expression of how this works. Let's read it again. I turn my feet toward your testimonies. It's a practical expression of physically putting yourself in a position to obey God. Elsewhere, the scripture tells us to not turn to the left nor to the right. Here he just makes it simple. My feet are directed toward your testimonies. Not about just reading God's word, that's crucial, that's fundamental, but subjecting yourself to sound, concrete, solid, legitimately biblical teaching, and separating yourself from faulty teaching that's going to water down the sound teaching. Verse 60 in Psalm 119 says, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. There's a quick effort to get there, to subject yourself to God's commands. And then this in verse 61, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. The pathway to the cords of the wicked that ensnare a person starts with faulty theology. Oh, it's only a little bit wrong. It only diverts a tad from the truth of God's character. It ultimately results in the wickedness of that ensnares a person, and many times he doesn't even realize it. What he ends up doing is entangling himself with someone else who's entangled in it. And then maybe somebody else, and then they become the two or three or four blind people who have no idea just how obvious their entanglement in sin is while everyone else is looking on with pity. And add or supply to your self-control steadfastness. This word is uh, the word perseverance. Perseverance. John MacArthur says it is to remain strong in unwelcome toil and hardship. You won't know whether or not you are steadfast or a person who perseveres until toil and hardship arrive at your doorstep and crawl into your kitchen. Then you'll know whether or not you desire to persevere. But Peter's command is to do it to persevere in light of the self-control that you've shown. You have knowledge, exercise self-control in that knowledge, and then be steadfast. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Does this describe our church? I certainly hope so. But if you find yourself on the outside looking in, it might be a good thing to meditate on what Paul is saying here about the Thessalonians. He says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Are you persevering? Are you steadfast in the trial with the body such that spiritual leaders could look on and say we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers or would they have to say except for those you know five or six folks choose to do it choose to be steadfast choose to persevere Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Now, he's just called the reader to look to a long list of what some have called the spiritual hall of fame. People who are spiritually successful. People who are, in fact, godly People who endured, who persevered amidst trial in tribulation. You know that one of the first things that happens when, in many cases, someone begins to undergo a trial, what's the first thing that falls off the list? Involvement with the body of Christ. Well, we'll take care of that on Sunday. It's the wild card day. We got a big issue. We got a big problem. We'll just take care of it on that day. And no wonder. There's an absence of steadfastness. No wonder there's an absence of self control. No wonder there's an absence of knowledge. He goes on then to say, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did he persevere amidst trial, amidst death, amidst being murdered? It was the joy that was set before him, the joy of knowing that the Father would be pleased and that eternal life would be granted to those who would repent and believe in the gospel. He says, despising the shame, Christ despised the shame, but he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he no longer experiencing any affliction or trial or the implications and the consequences of the sins of others, but sitting at the right hand of his Father. Steadfastness. Peter says, supply to your steadfastness godliness. You remember that godliness is piety, it's devoutness, it's reverence for God. We called it last week, as one commentator did, uh, rightly directed worship. It's reverence for God. Of course, you'll want to go back. And circle this word and draw a line back to verse 3 where it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Again, this is the same term. Godliness and godliness. Add to your steadfastness godliness. Don't just be a person who perseveres, but be a person who regularly invokes reverence for God in your mind. You'll also want to put in the margin, chapter 3, 11 to 12, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. You and I are called to godly lives now, today in light of the eternal reality that we will be likened unto his character in the glorified state. But there is coming a great wrath poured out on mankind. And the privilege and responsibility that you and I have now is to live godly lives, to live in godliness, to add godliness to our steadfastness. In First Timothy 4, verse 7, Paul says, "...have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths." Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, Paul says about those who have proven to be false believers, false converts, that they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And then he says, avoid such people. avoid them he says then add to your godliness a brotherly affection or brotherly kindness jesus really laid the foundation for this in matthew 22 verse 36 where one lawyer said to him teacher which is the great commandment in the law and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And interestingly, in the passage that we just read from Second Timothy 3, Paul includes a love of self as being indicative of being an unbeliever. So here where Jesus is calling us to love our neighbor as ourself, he's calling us to a brotherly affection. He's not calling us to love self. He's implying that we already do. In 1 Peter 3, verse 8, Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now note Peter's affection for Paul. In chapter 3, verse 15 of uh, 2 Peter. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. But as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Isn't that interesting? Peter, who was confronted publicly by Paul, and here Peter refers to him as our beloved brother, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Paul's willingness to speak the truth in love to Peter resulted in his faithfulness add to your brotherly affection or supply to your brotherly affection love that brotherly affection of course bound up in and nurtured in the body of Christ you know it's timely to ask what do your relationships look like are they intentionally shallow do you you do everything you possibly can to avoid any kind of scrutiny of your life? Or do you enjoy the brotherly affection that leads to a willingness to be practically helpful? The man who is an island is not a godly man. The man who runs from correction, he runs from instruction, he's not a godly man. He doesn't exhibit brotherly affection. He apparently has no interest in it if he doesn't exercise it. But Peter says, add to that love. 1 John 3, verse 14 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Jesus said in John 13:35, "By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another." It's important to define love biblically. It's a willingness to die for others. As proven in a willingness to live for others. In your margin here, you might write chapter 1, verse 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We'll get into this in a few weeks. This is my beloved son, my loved son. What is the standard? What is the example for brotherly affection that is capitalized with love? It's the father with the son. It's the son with the father. The love that the father and the son share with the Holy Spirit in perfect unity is the standard by which we are to love each other. You can't pick and choose who you love in the body of Christ. And every single person in the body of Christ in your local church should have some conviction, some belief that you love them by how you treat them. You can't spend lots of time with everybody in our church. There are nearly 200 people. But you can show that love in how you serve. Be careful that you don't serve and show your love in an idolatrous way by choosing only some to love. At the same time, recognize that in the family group environment, you've been given a great opportunity to exercise that love in a particular way that reveals the need for others to do the same. It's a great example that when you said it, it has impact on others. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Is that how you think of the body? should chapter 3 verse 8 but do not overlook this one fact beloved that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance clearly writing to the elect God does not wish for any one of them to perish and Peter prefaces this with a recognition of his love for those to whom he writes do you love the brethren that way intentionally volitionally deliberately strategically do you set out to love Christians that way or are you happy and comfortable with your spouse or your family as the idolatry of family led to a disinterest in the body of Christ. Nothing wrong with loving your spouse and your family. You should. But the example that you should set before your family is that the body of Christ is priority. As you serve your family and you reveal to your family what it is to love God, you show to them that your priority is God. You do that practically. You do that in a way that Peter does it. You call them beloved. You don't have to use that word exactly. It's a little outdated, although I still like it. In chapter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see, Peter showed his love for the body of Christ by reminding them to be engaged in sanctification. Again, it should trouble you. If you're making efforts with someone to encourage and help their sanctification by calling them to discipleship, and they reject it, they're rejecting your love. It is a matter of love that Peter calls the believer to be sanctified. He goes on and says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you. And then in chapter three, verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. See, out of love, he calls them to abandon false theology, to stop listening to false teaching, to stop subjecting yourself to it. Why? Because he loves them. This may be one of the most difficult things for immature young Christians to get past because they've got some sort of emotional affinity for someone that they thought loved them. They're unwilling to scrutinize the depth and the reality and the honesty of their teaching. Point number five being the practice of godliness. We've seen it. This is how it works. Do these things. Engage in these practices. As a result of God providing for you all things pertaining to life and godliness in the true knowledge of Him. So that's the practice, point five. Point six, the product of godliness. The product of godliness. For if these qualities, what qualities? The things we just went through. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, increasing, We call this a conditional statement. It's conditioned upon whether or not these qualities are yours and equally whether or not they are increasing. Do you desire to serve the body of Christ? Or have you determined that this is an option that you're not yet ready for? The product of godliness. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... In other words, the fact that they're yours is that you've taken possession of them. Increasing means that you're growing in your devotion to them. If they are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unfruitful and ineffective in what? That which leads to godliness. The knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, if you're involving yourself in these things that are obvious devotion to the body, you won't be found unfruitful. You won't be found ineffective in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the person who is defective in his knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is not committed to these qualities. He might pretend well in some areas. But there's going to be living proof that one or more of these qualities is not important to him. Therefore, he will have a skewed understanding of the character of God. And it'll be okay with him. He might even fight for it. Be sure to encircle knowledge here and draw a line back up to verse 5 where you see the word knowledge. You might also write in the margin... Chapter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. You remember when we looked at the fact that this knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ does two things, much like in 2 Corinthians 2, that as you are an aroma of Christ unto God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, it has a dual effect. Among those who are being saved, it's life unto life. But among those who are perishing, it's death unto death. Your conduct, your godliness, your devotion to Christ, your devotion to the word, your devotion to the body of Christ is death unto death. Not only for those who utterly and openly and boldly reject Christ, but for the false convert. You are a constant source of irritation for the person who's devoted to a false theology. In chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge. You might circle that word. You might put it in your margin here. 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Remember from verse 3 that it is through the knowledge of our God and Savior Jesus Christ that we experience godliness and then in verse nine here in our text for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins this describes the believer who is not on the pathway to godliness he's spiritually lazy he's been distracted he's been sidetracked so the matter of virtue and knowledge and self-control And steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love have not been the focus of his life. Point number seven, the perseverance of godliness. The perseverance of godliness. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall from Lorraine Bettner. If God has chosen men absolutely and unconditionally to eternal life, and if his spirit effectively applies to them the benefits of redemption, the inescapable conclusion is that these persons shall be saved. You want eternal security? Make certain of your calling and your election. And Peter explains how to do that. The Westminster Confession reads, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. You see, a man-centered, man-made, made-up theology defies this reality. It despises it. Peter here says we are to be diligent. Diligence shows an eagerness to be faithful. He says confirm your calling, and you might circle that word calling and draw a line back to verse 3 and circle it there where it says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You might even write in your margin Romans 8, 29 to 30. For it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. He says, confirm your election. Having said, confirm your calling, confirm your election. Peter certainly doesn't say here that we are to hate the doctrine of election that we should avoid it or criticize those who are grateful for it and are willing to address it as Scripture does. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Romans 9, verse 10, But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That it's not unusual, even in the church that's genuinely devoted to the sufficiency of Scripture, that even when there is a faithful, balanced devotion to all the attributes and works of God, that the person who hates God's sovereignty and loves the misguided concept of free will will be frustrated, dismissive, and even angry every time this doctrine is addressed from Scripture. It's poison to him, just as pure oxygen is to a fish. It's poison to him just as solid food is to an infant and just as truth is to the unbeliever. You see, it's one thing for the new believer or the believer who has received misguided, unfaithful, long-term teaching to be initially alarmed by the doctrine of election. Many of you have experienced that. But it's quite another thing when a person boldly rejects such a statement from the apostle. But then Peter says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What's the deal? The person that God has elected, the person that God has set apart for himself, is called to practice these qualities. And by practicing them, he can know that he will never fall. And therefore, he has assurance. But if he doesn't practice these qualities, or maybe he does a really good job of pretending to practice them, he should certainly question his salvation because it's in question. Well, point number eight, the prize of godliness. The prize of godliness. Verse 11 says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this way. In what way? By being certain of your calling and your election. Now think of it. If you disdain the doctrine of election, you won't have any interest in making certain your calling and your election. You will ridicule it, and you will despise those who will not let up by being faithful to teaching it from the Scripture, even when they do it in a balanced way with regard to all the doctrines of Scripture. The pursuit of sanctification is the ground floor of assurance. In this way, the pursuit of sanctification, the pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of brotherly affection, the pursuit of love, the pursuit of steadfastness. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You and I will be held accountable for our conduct. And there will be a prize for those who reflect godliness, those who reflect the calling and election. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this falls perfectly in hand with what Peter is telling us about being people who are committed to knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness. The people that Paul is talking about here are not they're devoted to reveling in the flesh first Peter 5 verse 4 and when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory who's he speaking to there he's speaking to the faithful shepherd who doesn't pull punches when it comes to the true reality of the character of God That's the man that God will ultimately bless in eternity. And the one he won't is the one who is willing to deliver a false theology so that it appeased the flesh of men and made them feel better. Finally, I want to read to you from Revelation 2, verse 9. Revelation 2, verse 9, to the church of Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Peter has given us the power of godliness, or he's shown it to us. He's shown us the pathway to godliness. He's revealed to us the promise of godliness. He's told us what the proof of godliness looks like. This morning, we've looked at the practice of godliness. We've seen that the product of godliness is an effectual life and ministry, a commitment to the body of Christ. That person is not ineffective. He's not unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've also seen that there is perseverance in godliness. We've seen the perseverance of godliness. The person who is diligent, he is aggressive about being certain of his calling and election. And how does he do that? He studies the scripture. And where he sees it in scripture, he doesn't reject it. He rests in it. And we've seen the prize of godliness This is not an earned prize. It is a prize set apart for the godly whom God has elected unto godliness. But the call still is to nurture that godliness. May we do that together. Father, we rest in your sovereign grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be certain of our calling and our election when such a clear command of Scripture is so hated by so many in the church today in our era who claim to know Christ. Lord, may we stand strong with grace, being willing to gently, patiently, lovingly proclaim the truth of the character of God, knowing that those who will persevere Will in fact step into eternity with Jesus Christ, worshiping Him. And those who don't persevere will not. So, Lord, lay heavily on our hearts the need to understand and rest in these truths, that we would be effective in ministry, not only to exalting you and to edifying and equipping the saints, but evangelizing the lost. That the message that we declare would be the right message, the biblical message a proclamation of the atoning death of Jesus Christ and the certain resurrection of Jesus Christ for victory over sin and death. And we ask this in his name, amen.